You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. So we're talking about living your best life and how it's important that we define our best life the way God defines our best life. And last week we talked about how your best life is a countercultural life. And that doesn't mean being some kind of alternative radical, we're not saying that, but rather not being in step with the world's dogma. Not letting the world, the secular world, define the categories and define things like what is your best life for us. And the reason why many can fall prey to cultural dogma is that it's just easier. So an easy life, we assume, is the best life. But Jesus isn't concerned with us having an easy life, but rather us actually having a committed life. So this week we're going to talk about how your best life in God's eyes is a committed life. Our membership meetings at five o'clock tonight here, our membership dinner, love for you to be at that as a church member. And also don't forget that our city group start this week. Love for you to stop by out in the lobby next to the coffee bar for some information next to that TV out there, uh, some information about city groups, how you can plug into that. Let's pray and then we will jump in. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful again for your hand upon Ashlyn's life and we just ask that you send her in a way that allows her to have maximum impact and work out all the details to get there. Ask me with all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, let the good news of Christ be proclaimed. We ask you the enemy out of this place and out of our city in the name of Christ. Amen. My favorite comedian of all time is Norm MacDonald. Uh, he died this past year, and towards the end of his life, I've read about Norm and listened to Norm forever. Uh, he was really on kind of a faith journey and ultimately found Christ uh, at his kind of dying time. And here's something he said during his faith journey of understanding Christianity. He said this, and I've always wanted to quote him in a sermon, it's just kind of a bucket list moment here. So he says that God is the best. That's what I'm trying to get to, to that actual belief. Faith is the only salvation. But I don't know how to believe. To just surrender is hard. I mean, what a moment of honesty there that probably a lot of people can relate to here in this room. But yes, God, God is good. Yes, faith, but Man, it's hard to believe sometimes. More than that, it's hard to surrender to what I claim to believe. We're going to talk this morning about someone that encountered Jesus and had to go through the process of that tension and that difficulty of belief with actually surrendering and having a committed life. It's going to be in Mark chapter 10 is the text we'll be in this morning. As he was setting out on a journey, referring to Jesus, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, as in heaven when I die? What must I do? What good thing must I do? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And you might say the same thing. I'm not perfect, but I've kept those, at least for the most part. And looking at him, this is an important detail, Jesus loved him. Didn't condemn him, but loved him. And because he loved him, he wanted him to understand the truth and where he was falling tremendously short. He said, you lack one thing. Mr. Guy who's kept all the commandments, 
Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, once you do that, then you can come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, grieving, because he had many possessions. So Jesus says, okay, go sell your stuff, all your stuff to the poor, then come follow me. Who's ever done that in this room? Has anyone sold all of their things and given them to the poor? All your stuff. So does that mean we're disqualified from following Jesus? That's not what this text is saying at all. And we're gonna dig into it a little bit and see exactly what Jesus is calling this man to be aware of and calling this man to do. See, wondering how he could inherit eternal life, heaven when you die, this rich young man came to Jesus wondering what he had to do in verse 17. The use of do, D-O, that small word, indicates that he thought he could enter God's kingdom by doing good, which is probably the most common belief in America. Good people go to heaven. Bad people don't. They never tell you exactly how good you have to be to get in or how bad you have to be to be exempt, but just universally people kind of just believe this generic, good people go to heaven when you die. Like every funeral you go to, you're told, we're just so thankful that Uncle Jimmy is in a better place. He, you know, he's playing that 18 holes in the sky. And why do they say that? Because he's a, you know, he's a good guy. That's what most people just randomly believe. And Jesus is going to encounter, is going to directly address that. But notice he doesn't directly rebuke him or condemn him for asking this question about what good thing must I do. We see that looking at him in verse 21, Jesus actually loved him. And instead he responds by asking the man why he was calling Jesus good. For no one is good, he said in verse 18, but actually God alone. And here's important to know that he's not denying, Christ is not denying his own goodness. He's not denying that he himself is God, but he's indirectly forcing the man to question his assumptions that he knows actual goodness and therefore that he actually knows the Lord. We could say that really what Jesus is claiming here is that no one is good but God. Because God is not grade on the, really, we could say, the curve of this world. God's standard is himself. So you might be a good person compared to somebody else on earth, but compared to God, we fall short every time. So therefore, you cannot rely on your moral behavior to receive eternal life, because your, your moral behavior doesn't erase the fact that you've sinned. And you owe God because of your sin. God doesn't cancel things out. That Diet Coke does not cancel out the large fry. In God's kingdom, it just doesn't work that way. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If we can earn our way to heaven, then Christmas makes no sense. Then why are we celebrating Jesus coming? Who cares? I kept the commandments, I think. I could do it on my own. The book of Galatians chapter two says that if we can attain righteousness by our works, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus' life is meaningless besides a few cool messages he taught us. Good Friday is the most wasted tragedy in the history of the world. And take your lily dress back and return it because Easter's meaningless. But since we can't earn our way to God, there's not a good thing we can do to inherit eternal life. Jesus came for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he's saying, like anyone, you must follow me. Like, that's the call upon you. And he gives him a list of ethical and moral commands and tells him that if he does these things, 
He's going to enter the kingdom of God. He's setting them up for a lesson here. The man seems relieved at first, and he professes his own resume, his own kind of moral track record of keeping the commands. But even if he did obey those commands, he was still missing something. There's still something going on here, and Jesus catches him on the first commandment, seeing that he worships the idol of his stuff, of his wealth, of his possessions. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, out of the gate, Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He freed those, the Hebrew people, out of physical slavery. Today in the New Testament as Christians, we are freed out of spiritual slavery. Based on who I am and what I've done, he says, do not have other gods beside me. No other gods. That's the first commandment out of the gate. Do not worship anything else or anyone else but me. You might say, well, I've never built a statue in my backyard and bowed down to it and worshiped, so I guess I'm doing a pretty good job, but that's not the point of this. Jesus tells this man to sell his stuff and follow him, but the man refuses to do what Jesus said because he has riches and he has possessions. So what he, and not being judgmental towards this man, we're told this in the story, what he functionally just did, and not functionally, practically, literally everything, Jesus, I don't want you, I want my stuff instead. In other words, this is more important than you. I even know you're special, like I came to you asking the questions, I believe in God. But this is more important than you on the scale of things that are important. And this man is denied the possibility of entering the kingdom of God based on his own merit. And then shows that he really was the sinner that he knew he was by refusing to worship Christ and instead worshiping him stuff. It's important in context to see the significance here, the foolishness of thinking we can save ourselves. That our works can save us. It flies contrary to the entire Christian message. But there's more here to the story. And then Jesus turns and pivots to tell his disciples more of a lesson so they can get exactly what's happening here. He looked around, verse 23, and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How hard? You might go, yeah, that must be hard. Well, guess who's considered wealthy in this world? You. You. Because you have electricity, and you bought groceries, and you drove here, or could afford an Uber here. And you're gonna go watch, maybe watch football last night on the streaming service you pay for, and have clothes, and can afford eyeglasses, and shoes that your kids wear to school. I don't wanna make light in any, on anyone's situation that is struggling here financially, but compared to the rest of the world, we're viewed as very, wealthy people. So don't think this is reserved for somebody else. This is not reserved for somebody who lives on Davis Island down in Tampa. This is not reserved for somebody who has five houses. This is for us. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God in general? Like for anybody. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to paint an impossible situation. That a camel cannot go through the eye of the needle. Like real camel, real needle. There's some old like Facebook article or, or like forward, forward, forward that went out years ago that's saying there's this place in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle and the camels would duck underneath it to get through and that's where it comes from. That's actually not true. What he's doing here is he's actually painting an impossible scenario to show how impossible it is, not just for the rich person, for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. You see, it's hard to see your need when you don't have many needs. And for this person, his money took top priority in his life. It was more important to him than following Jesus. Clearly, he said no and walked away. Again, my first instinct here is to think, well, I wouldn't do that. Like, I'm a good Christian. If Jesus asked me to sell my stuff, I'd be willing to do it. And then I go, but would I really? Because in my gut, I think that that wouldn't be my best life. What I'm doing there is I'm, if Jesus called me to that, like physically said to me, like this man physically was told us by Jesus, what's happening here is he's believing there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And that for his best life, he has to go around God, not actually to him. This isn't simply about stuff. This text is not just about possessions. It's anything where you said, God, I know you said this, but I say this. God, I know your word says this, but no, but I say this instead. And whenever we do that, whenever I do that, you do that, we are doing, what we are saying is, God, this is more important than you in my life. I know your word calls me to flee sexual immorality, but I know your word does not call me to be in this toxic relationship with someone who doesn't support my faith, but actually hinders it. So if anybody says anything to me about it, I'm going to stop coming to church because I don't want to hear it. That's you, and Jesus says, sell your stuff, saying no, and walking away. I know your word conflicts with my political views, but I'm a business owner. I'm a veteran. I'm a minority. I'm a woman. I'm a social worker. So I'm going to go this way and, and do this, even though it compromises and contradicts what the scriptures say. I know your word calls me to be faithful to my spouse, but we've just kind of fallen out of love. I know the gathering of the church is what the scriptures point to being a regular important rhythm in my life, but the virus, two years later. Whatever it is, God is calling for us to lay it down and commit to him over anything else. And I'm not an expert on this. I'm probably more Norm MacDonald than I am Jesus. And you probably are too. It's a battle. It's a struggle of actually believing that God is best. And that our best life is actually with him. And you might ask this question, at least my mind went here, well isn't what's happening here in the story with Jesus and the man in Mark 10, isn't that us having to do good in order to enter the kingdom of God? Because Jesus said, do this and then you can. That might sound like a contradiction, like Jesus is advocating faith by works. And that's a great question in this context. It's important to see verses 26 and 27. When the disciples said, who in the world can do this then? And he said, they were, even, they were, even, were told were even more astonished, saying to one another than who can be saved. 
Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. That we need God to do the work in us by grace. So what Jesus is telling them is that salvation is free. It's fully dependent upon Christ, but actually following Jesus is not cheap. Salvation is free. Jesus paid it all, as the old hymn goes. All to him we owe. But following Jesus is not cheap. I think it's a myth, personally, that people fear commitment. Hear that a lot? People have commitment phobia. They, they fear commitment. And maybe you're, you're single and somebody asks you out and then you agree to go out just because whatever and then they want to take it a step further like in, the, in a relationship and you're like, ah, you know, I... I'm just not looking for a relationship right now. I just don't really want a commitment right now. Then somebody better looking asks you out. Suddenly you want a commitment. Am I right or am I right? People aren't afraid of commitment. They just commit to that they want to actually commit to. Like you don't fear commitment to your daughter's cheerleading team or your son's soccer team or your Disney passes. You don't fear commitment to your career ambitions and goals. You don't fear commitment to anything that you actually want to commit to. I'll say I'm overcommitted, but miraculously I can still commit to things I want to commit to. You don't fear commitment to the eight hours you give a football game on a Saturday after you tailgate and traffic and go to go. It's just, it's just none of those things are bad things. But what's more important? The point being that we commit to what we want to commit to. Doug Sweeney, who was a former president of Beeson Divinity School, which is in uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, a great seminary. He states this, and this one stung a little bit for me. Many Christians, young and old, have misplaced priorities. Many of us spend more time on sports than we do reading the Bible. We make more time for media than meeting others' needs. We pray very little and not very hard. Our plans for retirement are mostly R and R. We're hedging our bets regarding life in the world to come investing more of our free time and excess income in mundane pastimes than in, the kingdom, than in the kingdom of God. Many of us today would pay as much as we can afford to extend our worldly lives for just a couple months. To use the language of the Puritans, we don't seem to have weaned our affections from the world. And I don't think we're supposed to sit inside our, our houses and read our Bibles all day. That's not what this is saying. But what it's saying is with the Puritans that our affections for the world can oftentimes be so much greater than our affections for God. And that's what's happening with this man in Mark chapter 10. And that's what's happening with this man anytime I say, God, no, not what you say, what I want. So the question I'm asking myself as I was writing this message is, are you committed more to Christ or to an idea of Jesus? Like actually the biblical Christ or Jesus that I've kind of manufactured myself that seems to always agree with me and always make my life as easy as possible. You see, following Jesus interferes with your life. And that quote from Norm, you can just like feel that happening. Like it, it messes with things. And if it never does, maybe you're following a Jesus that you created rather than a Jesus of the Bible. My friend Trevin Wax wrote a letter acting as this rich man in a present context. Kind of a first person narrative, kind of character play here. And here's what he wrote, acting as if he is this man in this equation here. 
When I think of the reasons that have led me to pen this letter, I get sad. I never intended to walk away from the faith. There's so much about Jesus that I like, his personality, his teaching, his example. I never wanted to walk away from Jesus or his followers, but I feel like I'm left with no choice. Based on the testimony of others my age, I know I'm not alone. There are people like me walking away every day. Why? Well, here's my attempt at giving an answer. First of all, I get this feeling that I'm not good enough, that I'm lacking something, that I don't measure up. This is altogether frustrating. I've been an upstanding citizen, moral and decent from the time I was a kid. Remember he said he kept all the commandments? That's the way I was raised, to be a good person who loves other people. The last thing I want to do is harm or hurt anyone. I'm honest. I honor those in authority over me. I try to be life-giving in my conversations. I never steal or cheat anyone. Despite all my good qualities, I feel like there's a strange fixation on my financial choices. It's like everywhere I turn, here we go again, harping on my finances. There's so much I have to offer. Why do my personal decisions carry this much weight? What does it matter what I do with my finances as long as I'm showing love to those around me and no one gets hurt? It's like I'm supposed to give up the core of who I am to exchange my identity somehow. I'm wealthy, yes, relatively speaking, but I give when I see a need. Isn't that enough? Besides, I'm not always sure that the people I give to, the poor, religious people, charities, would make good use of my gifts. Better invest wisely so I can do more with my money in the long run. Why this strange fascination with my personal choices? I could be wrong, but it seems like this whole religion thing has become far too demanding. More and more people are likely to give up completely if the bar is set this high. It's nearly impossible for me to join the followers of Jesus if this is what is asked of me. So sadly, I walk away. And I feel Jesus is sad too. Notice it's not other people that called him to this, putting pressure on him. It was Jesus inviting him away from worship of the things of this world to worship of the one true God. So what was the issue here? Was the issue that the man had money? No, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's bad to have money. If it's gained honestly, never feel guilty for having money or inheriting money or working hard for money or investing wisely or saving well. Or The Bible doesn't speak against those things. It warns about those things and what they can do to us. How many people do you know who have changed once they got more money? They became different people. That's what we're being warned against. Here's the deal. The rich young ruler didn't have money. Money had him. Jesus still loved him. It wasn't that he had money. That wasn't the issue. It was that money had a hold of him. And fill in the blank for any other thing that might have a hold of you right now. A relationship. Image. But Jesus comes for people like us. And while we try to let go of him all the time, guess what? He never lets go of us. Well, I'm not asking you to get more committed or to do more. I'm asking you to be committed to the one who's always committed to you, and his name is Jesus. He loved us first, the book of 1 John tells us. 
So the call for us to love God is based first on the fact that he loved us. And until I understand God's fatherly affections for me, my affections will never actually grow for him. And everything else is going to seem better. And my best life is going to seem like it's found in something or someone else rather than found in the one who came to this world to die for sinners. So the question to ask is, what has you? What has you? And are you someone who's committed to Christ or to the idea of him? Norm MacDonald, God is the best. That's what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to fight against the lie. There's more to be gained by disobeying him. There is to be gained by obeying him. I'm trying to get over the lie that I have to go around God if I'm looking for. Like, I want to believe that God is the best. That's what I'm trying to get to. Faith is the only salvation. Faith in Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life, Jesus said. That no one comes to the Father except through him. But I don't know how to believe. You can even have the right theology. Know the right answers to the questions and still have a hard time believing. And he says it's just surrender is hard. It is. But Jesus told us that while following him is hard, that he himself, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Like we said last week, he invites us into green pasture as the shepherd who opens up the gate. That he's gentle and lowly, the scriptures tell us. That he sees you as a brother, a sister, a friend. So instead of being a friend of the world, let's instead be a friend of Christ. He's the one who's committed to us, what it looks like for us to be committed to him. And that is a daily battle, a daily journey of answering the question, what has me? While never forgetting that if you're in Christ and know Jesus, that he always has you. Go to the one who loved you first and who always loves you best. Your best life is a committed life to Jesus over this world. Let's pray together. Let's stand. Father, we are thankful that you have our best life in mind. That you don't want us to go with the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but to be with you who gives us life and gives it abundantly. Lord, I ask that we will all believe together as a church family that you are the best life. That you really are better. And in our struggles to surrender and struggles to believe, or that we'll be reminded of your commitment to us in Jesus, the one who purchased us, redeemed us, died for us. But we're grateful to be the adopted children into your family through Christ. Let us believe that. Let that be what drives us and guides us to want to love you more. So we ask to be more convinced of your affections for us, and that will increase our affections for you. Pray for those in our church family who are hurting, who have suffered loss, who are sick, who have doubts right now, whatever it could be. Allow them to see you understand who you are and what you have done, and as a result, that all of us with open hands will say, Jesus, here's my life, because you gave yours for us. Thankful for that grace and mercy and love. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.